This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellersley.com to learn more. Now, for some of you that watched me walk up the aisle and set my shoes on the stage, you're thinking, is this a normal practice? Uh, are these fresh socks uh, that Eric has on? I, uh, my shoes are by me instead of on me, and uh, it's... There was something about the message today, it's called Holy Ground, and it reminded me of something, and ironically, it reminded me of something that uh, Jenna uh, Mockler's dad, uh, who's you know, uh, a definite fan favorite in our midst here, uh, he lives, he's a pastor up in Washington, when I had coffee with him, he gets so excited about the things that God is teaching him, and he was telling me about uh, the significance of shoes and removing shoes. And I thought that's, you know, not a bad way to start this message because the significance of moving shoes, it's like a start of a new season. And, you know, in this, we're going to talk about holy ground, which is going to get us to the burning bush. And you're going to see a request to remove shoes because it's holy ground. Uh, Joshua is going to cross uh, the, the, the Jordan River and uh, he's going to run into uh, the commander of the army of the Lord's host and he's going to be requested to remove his shoes. And what's interesting is most of us don't think about this, but Jesus is going to ask us to remove our shoes. And it's always the beginning of something new. 40 years in the backside of the wilderness and then a burning bush. And then there's a new shotting of the feet. It's, uh, it's, it's a new beginning. Shoes and the transfer of shoes represents, seems to be a new beginning, a new way that you're walking. And it's interesting because when Joshua is asked to remove his shoes, just think about those particular shoes. The shoes of the Israelites in the wilderness for, again, 40 years are not going to wear out. They're supernatural shoes. So it's not that he's asking him to remove some piece of junk. This is actually a symbol of God's supply, God's provision, God's faithfulness. However, I want to do a new thing in your midst. And Jesus in the New Testament, he asks us to remove our shoes. Why? So that he can begin something new in our lives, so that he can wash us from an old life and establish a new life. And so I thought it was rather apropos that I remove my shoes. Uh, I have done that in the past in different messages, uh, usually dealing with a similar theme. And it's probably a tradition that should be every week, technically, if you were to think it through. Uh, but Sometimes, you know, like communion, that could be a weekly thing and it would be totally reasonable, right? And removing shoes is sort of like that. It's a symbol, but it's a symbol of leaning in and expecting God to do something new. It's like, God, I am standing in a territory that I believe you possess. And for each of us, we're starting a new semester and you've just arrived. Last night you had an orientation. This is your first Sunday service. It's a good time to remove our shoes because it's a new beginning, and we want to lean in. We want to recognize that the territory we're in is a holy territory. We want to tremble. There's nothing quite like moving into the holy territory, the sacred ground, or what this message is called the holy ground. And there's a trembling because, I mean, you're in the presence of a holy God, and yet you are not holy. 
uh, that, that's a dangerous thing. I mean, who's going to risk that? Which is, of course, part of the message uh, that we're going to talk about. But it's a beautiful thing to tremble and to fear God and to recognize that he has invited us into this territory, that he wants us to enter into this sacred space and share life with him. He wants us to share our life with him. He wants to share his life with us. So removing old sandals, the beginning of something new. God wants to do a new thing in our lives. And that's not just for the students. For those of you that uh, are here that are you know, sort of the old standby, the, the, the old guard here in Windsor that pray for what's going on, and even those listening on a podcast, it doesn't exclude you just because you're not starting a five-week semester, to always be expectant that God wants to bring us into that new season. Understanding sacred territory. So there's a lot of unique ways that we could unpack this. Uh, what we see in Exodus 3, 4 through 5, which is what I just mentioned, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. A bit of Jewish perspective. Now, I, I actually prefer to give this in my own Eric Ludi paraphrase, but this, it was this actual quote that really impacted me years and years ago on the idea of holiness. But it wasn't from a Christian perspective, it was from a Jew. It was a Jewish rabbi that was describing the way a Jew appropriates holiness. And I was like, boy, we, that could really do us some good. And so I'm going to read you the original quote as opposed to my Eric Ludi paraphrase, which I do think is superior, you know, my, my paraphrase. But, uh, but I think you'll like this. So this is Rabbi Joseph Telushkin. God's word is great and holy. The holiest land in the world is the land of Israel. In the land of Israel, the holiest city is Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, the holiest place was the temple. And in the temple, the holiest spot was the holy of holies. There are 70 peoples in the world. The holiest among these is the people of Israel. The holiest of the people of Israel is the tribe of Levi. In the tribe of Levi, the holiest are the priests. Among the priests, the holiest was the high priest. There are 354 days in the lunar year. Remember, this is a Jewish calendar. Among these, the holidays are holy. Higher than these is the holiness of the Sabbath. Among, this, among Sabbaths, the holiest is the day of atonement, the Sabbath of Sabbaths. There are 70 languages in the world. The holiest is Hebrew. Holier than all else in this language is the Holy Torah. And in the Torah, the holiest part is the Ten Commandments. In the Ten Commandments, the holiest of all the words is the name of God. And once during the year, at a certain hour, these four supreme sanctities of the world were joined with one another. That was on the Day of Atonement when the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and there utter the name of God. And because this hour was beyond measure holy and awesome, it was the time of utmost peril not only for the high priest but for the whole of Israel. For if in this hour there had, God forbid, entered the mind of the high priest a false or sinful thought, the entire world would have been destroyed. I'm not saying that's what it says in the Bible. I'm saying that is a very interesting statement from a Jew. In other words, that they would hold it with such trembling that these holies would enter in and merge together, that 
the high priest, who's the holiest of the priests, who's, which is the holiest of all the different Levites, which is the holiest of all the different 12 tribes, which is the holiest of all the people, would enter into that place, that piece of land, which is known as the Holy of Holies, which is rightly named, don't you think, in that holy temple, in that holy city, in that holy country, in this holy earth. And he would speak the holiest word out of all of the holy words of God in the Ten Commandments, which is in all of the holy words of the Torah, in all the holy words of the Bible, in all of the holy words of the Hebrew, which is the holiest of all uh, languages in all uh, languages. And when those combine on that one holy day, which is the holiest of all the Sabbaths, the holiest of all the holy days, which is where we get our word holiday, then if he even had a speck of sin on him, the whole world would be destroyed. That's a trembling. That would be a nice feature to just sort of add into our Christianity. You see, many of us don't have a trembling. We don't understand the fear of God. And so as a result, when we hear that, we just sort of look at it like, that's strange. As opposed to recognizing that when something is set apart, it is very, very significant for God. But when you I mean, you look at like the Holy of Holies and you're like, that's not just set apart. Israel is set apart, the land of Israel. But then out of all the land of Israel, Jerusalem is called the Holy City. So it's set apart from all other cities. And just think about all that's going to happen in the city of Jerusalem. I mean, you have things like the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit uh, on, at Pentecost. It's like you got a lot going on in that Holy City, Right. And yet, out of all that holy city, there's one piece of property that's more holy than the rest of the city, and that is the Temple Mount. But out of that Temple Mount, there is one place more holy than any other place in all that Temple Mount, in all that holy city, in all that holy nation of Israel. And that is called the Holy of Holies. Now, the shocker comes when I ask this question. Do you not know that, um, that Ur, you are the Temple of God? You see, can you understand why a Jew would struggle with a Christian, just sort of lightheartedly with a cavalier attitude going, yeah, I'm the, I'm the temple of the living God. It's like, no, 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 no. A holy God would not have anything to do with you. And they have a point. A holy God would, should have nothing to do with the likes of us. He's holy. He's righteous. He's perfect. He's pure. He's just. We are not. And yet part of the goodness of that great gospel that is really needs to somehow make its way into the depths of our being afresh so that we can be astounded by it is that this holy God has made a way to share his life with us. And he actually desires to take this territory known as the human body and make it the most holy place in all of his creation. That is a remarkable statement. Do you not know this? Paul asked that multiple times. And I, I, I would almost want to respond, no, we don't. I, don't. I don't think we're getting it. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. In other words, there is a trembling that is associated. That's New Testament. There is a trembling that is supposed to go with this package known as Christianity. 
And it would help for us to understand that holiness. It would help for us to recognize the seriousness of this. That though God is holy, he has made a way. But even though he's made a way, he didn't diminish his holiness. He still is holy, holy, holy. The chariot of the cherubim. We used to, in our, in our training at Ellerslie, uh, have a message called the chariot of the cherubim that we would give. We, you know, we have a little uh, trimmed down version that you guys are going through five weeks. That used to be in a 12-week version. And so we had a little more time, and we don't have time. So I can splurge it in a time like this. Now, I'm not going into it, but it is one of the coolest things in Scripture. If you look at the book of Ezekiel, it's one of the most confusing books you'd ever read, right? Most people make it a couple, you know, paragraphs into Ezekiel and then move on uh, because they have no idea what they're reading. And yet what they're reading about is what I could call the chariot of the cherubim. It's this like chariot with wheels. Remember the wheels have eyes in them and we're like, uh, what? Wheel, wheels with eyes? And under those wheels are cherubim, living creatures is how it starts by describing them in the beginning of Ezekiel. And then by the end of Ezekiel, you know that they're actually cherubim, which are angelic creatures with four wings. They also have hands and they have feet like a hind. This is like uh, Narnia is what it is. Or maybe I should say Narnia is like the book of Ezekiel. And it is truly remarkable because on top of this chariot, like the base of the chariot is like, you almost call it like frozen water or like a jewel that looks like frozen water. And then on top of that is a throne. And on top of the throne is God. Whoa, clothed in a rainbow. I mean, this is, and so what this is, I'm just going to get down to it. It's the mobile holy of holies. Okay, it's like God is like flying about. He's moving about and he's carried by cherubim. And these cherubim don't look to the left or right. They, they only go where the head turns. So when God looks one way, they go that way. When he says to go this way, they go that way. They don't have their own agenda. They're submitted and yet the cherubim are the most extraordinary, most beautiful creatures ever created. They have four faces. They have the face of a man, they have the face of an ox, the face of a lion, and the face of an eagle. So, I mean, this is like a very odd character, right? But you think about that, and it's more like an eagle has the face of a cherub. A lion has the face of a cherub. An ox has the face of a cherub. We know that we are made in the image of God, but a cherub has the image of God plus the strengths of all of God's creation is going to be separated into these other creatures. This is one amazing thing. And you do know that Lucifer was a cherub. And so as a result, what you're saying is the most beautiful, the most wise. They have, they have wisdom to rule nations, to rule worlds, to rule you know, universes. They are powerful. When they move, it's like lightning. And when they flap their wings, it's like the sound of a rushing water like Niagara Falls. And yet, these cherubs are completely submitted to the will of God. And they only go where he goes. Isn't it funny that we're these pathetic creatures next to that? And yet we have our own agenda. We're like, I don't really want to look that way. I mean, you want to take this chariot that way? I don't want to go that way. Because in the New Testament, basically, we are the chariot of the cherubim. Except for, it's no longer called the chariot of the cherubim. It's called the church of Jesus Christ. We're the ones that are supposed to take that role. It's like he didn't design it for cherubim. He designed it for us to carry the glory of God into this world. We're like, you want us? I want you. That's why I created you. 
and yet you went astray. So now that you're coming back, I'd like you to put, I would like to put you under my chariot and have you carry it. Have you carry the glory of God into this world? That is an astounding thing. But do we recognize what we are carrying? As Paul says, do you not know that you are carrying the very glory of God? That, that's a paraphrase. Do you not realize that you are that chariot? Do you not realize that you are the mobile holy of holies? I don't think we do. I don't think we fully understand this. Here's a piece of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 10, 1 through 2. And I looked, and there in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubim, there appeared something like a sapphire stone, having the appearance of the likeness of a throne. Then he spoke to the man clothed with linen and said, Go in among the wheels under the cherub, fill your hands with coals of fire from among the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. And he went in as I watched. So here's what I'm going to describe, and this is where this message is going. We're going to talk about holy ground, because this is a mobile holy of holies, and here's the throne. And you have these cherubim that are there, and they're carrying this platform that looks like sapphire stone. And underneath the sapphire stone are these coals, coals of fire. And in this situation, we have a judgment. And so as a result, this man with, you know, clothed in linen is supposed to spread these coals over the city, scatter them about the city. It's like, huh, that's odd. So if you study just this phrase, you're going to see it, but this, this concept comes up in many different ways, but we'll call it the stones of fire. And I'm going to just say attempting to understand his holy territory. It's like I, I'm not an expert on the territory of God's throne room and all the details. I can share it with you, the scriptures, but there's a lot of Narnian feel to it. You know, so when I say Narnian, it's like it's a little beyond the mind of Eric Ludi. And so I try and grasp it, but there's certain things that will probably make a lot more sense when I actually arrive there, you know, in bodily form. And it's like, oh, I see what that was talking about. So number one, it's a sacred piece of real estate in the presence of God. So when we talk about the stones of fire, it's a zone, it's a territory, just like it is in this chariot. It's like when the, when the Holy of Holies goes mobile, it carries with it the stones of fire. Which is interesting, it's just like this territory on the chariot. So Colossians 2.9 and then 1.19. Uh, I don't know if I have the, maybe this is exactly right. Thou art the anointed cherub that covers, and I have set thee, set thee so. Could someone check on the scripture reference for this? Something seems odd about uh, this. Thou art the anointed cherub that covers, and I have set thee so. Thou was upon the holy mountain of God, thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. So there's our stones of fire. Thou hast sinned, therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. So we have this zone, this territory known as the stones of fire, and we see that the cherub, known as Lucifer, actually was in that zone, but he is going to be thrown out from it. We also know that it's located in a sacred position at the foot of the throne of God. Habakkuk 3, 3 through 5. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. Selah, his glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. He had rays flashing from his hands, and there his power was hidden. Before him went pestilence, and burning coals went forth at his feet. So you have, remember that picture I, I talked about in Ezekiel where you have the throne and then you have the feet and somewhere down in this zone is the stones of fire. And this seems to be the zone where in Job, remember when Satan is walking back and forth, 
You know, it's like, what is he doing there? And yet we have something known as the stones of fire, some kind of territory. Number three, it seems to be associated with cleansing and purging of confessed sin. So here's Isaiah 6. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to, one, to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Number four, it seems also to be associated with the destruction of defiant evil and unrepentant sin. Psalm eleven six: Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. Now we've heard of these coals and this fire and brimstone, but it's interesting that there seems to be these coals, these stones of fire right before God and before his throne. Psalm 18, from the brightness before him, his thick clouds passed with hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of, coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered the foe, lightnings in abundance, and he vanquished them. So there's other mentions, and if, if you have the notes from today's message, you can see those. Other mentions of the stones of fire. So it's not just mentioned a few times, it's mentioned quite a few. The stones of fire. So this is going to be our initial conclusion that we could have. That this is a place of God's burning judgment. He's a holy, holy, holy God. And as a result, he reserves judgment for the unrighteous. And he has the stones there right in front of him. And that's not the most pleasant thought, but it's still a truth. It's still who he is. Warning, do not draw near this holy ground. Remove your shoes, Moses. So what we're going to see is, it's interesting to think about where the presence of God is, that in that zone is this, these stones, right? It's like, hey, you might want to walk and tread lightly uh, in that territory. You're, you're entering the very presence of God. So, hey, Moses, remove your shoes. The mountain of fire, Exodus 19 you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. So if you're going to imagine that this mountain is the dwelling place of God in this situation, that if you're going to approach it, you need to recognize this is a holy territory. If anyone even touches it, they're dead. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. Welcome to the presence of God. You see, this is a symbol of the giving of the law, which is the first teacher. So in the training at Ellerslie, you're going to notice I'm always going to divide things into two. And the first is always over here. 
And by the way, if you're wondering why we're short a, a camera, uh, and it's the second camera too, isn't that terrible? Uh, is it went on meltdown uh, this last week, so we ordered two new ones. So we should have two new, and there should be higher quality too, but that's the awkwardness of having one camera up there. But first and second, and we have two teachers that have been given to us by God. The first is the law, and the second one is the Holy Spirit, and they're given on the same day. It's called Pentecost in the New Testament, but it, it marks 50 days from Passover. That's what penta means, and it's interesting to think that the first teacher is right here, and it's, it needs, you need to understand something. The first teacher is wanting to show you God's holy. In fact, he's holy, holy, holy. And unless you are holy and like him, unless you bear perfect righteousness, where, and here it is, tablets of stone, you keep this, you cannot enter here. And that's quite the stipulation. And what you recognize is that there is judgment for those that cannot fulfill perfect righteousness. That's your first teacher. What's it going to teach you? You can't do it. That's what it's going to teach you. The first teacher is going to show you that you are insignificant for the task. And what it says in the, in, the, in the Bible is it's going to say, the law was a schoolmaster which led us to Jesus. You see, we need a savior. We need a second. And if we're leaning just on our first condition, what's in our pockets naturally, our natural man, we will fail. We will not be able to ever approach this holy place. We just touch it in our own sinfulness and we die. Well, how, how can we ever deal with this problem? The question of all those that behold God is a consuming fire. God actually wants us to see Mount Sinai. He wants us to see his holiness. In fact, the very first revelations of God, as we see his nature being revealed, are going to be things like this, holiness. I'm not like you. That's a good description of holiness. I'm not like you. I'm really not like you. That's a good way of saying holy, holy, holy. In other words, we are sinful. Something is off. And it, that something that is off goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. And it's been off, but he loves us. And so he's going to reveal himself to us. But for us to truly understand the revelation of who he is, and that he is love, and that he is mercy, and that he is grace, we actually need to behold the fact that we are not like him. And that is an important first step for the soul to recognize there's a problem in me. He's like, bingo. I am not like you. You're right. Keep talking, Eric. I need a savior. There you go. You see, the law converts the soul. It actually brings us to Christ. This understanding of his holiness should not be diminished because we now are in the new covenant. He has not lost his holy, holy, holiness. He has not lost his righteousness. He has, the stones of fire are still there. However, he has given us a means of access, and that is part of the profundity, the beauty, the power of what the gospel brings us. So here's the question of all those that behold God as a consuming fire. Psalm 24, 3, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? Uh, you know, the answer, it's like, well, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. And so then we could all raise our hand. Who, you know, who's that? Who has clean hands and a pure heart? <laughs> Uh, see, none of us do, which means none of us can stand in his holy place. None of us can ascend the hill of the Lord. Uh, we got a problem, guys. It's called bad news. 
Aren't you glad that there's good news? But good news only makes sense when you have the bad news. You see, you have no business ascending this hill. You have no business standing in his holy place. You can't approach that place. And that's why he approached it for you. The middle wall of partition. Do not draw near. So much of the Old Testament is made up of that. Do not. Hey, stay away. Stay away. Take off those shoes. So listen to John Rutherford speak of that middle wall of partition. In the year 1871, while excavations were being made on the site of the temple by the Palestine, Palestine Exploration Fund, M. Claremont Gonneau, sorry uh, for my pronunciation on that French name, discovered one of the pillars which Josephus describes as having been erected upon the very barrier or middle wall of partition to which Paul refers. This pillar is now preserved in the museum at Constantinople and is inscribed with a Greek inscription in capital or uncial letters, which is translated as follows. So just imagine, this is in the Temple Mount. This is what the Jews would understand and know. No man of another nation is to enter within the fence and enclosure around the temple, and whoever is caught will have himself to blame that his death ensues. Uh, we're not allowed in, guys. So, I mean, we were having troubles, if, even if we're just a Jew, with, with the standard of righteousness. Now, uh, you get the Gentile problem. We're multiple steps removed. I know we may have some Jews in here that want to brag about the fact that, you know, well, they don't have to deal with the Gentile problem, but most of us have the Gentile problem. I mean, not only do we not have clean hands and a pure heart, but we're Gentiles. I mean, we got, we're multiple steps out of the way. I mean, what, what hope do we have in this world? Ephesians 2, 13 through 16, but now in Christ Jesus, you who, were once, who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished it in his flesh, the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. So John Rutherford comments on that, that Paul is making this statement that Jesus has broken down that middle wall of partition. And listen to this statement that John says. While Paul was writing the epistle to the Ephesians at Rome, this barrier in the temple at Jerusalem was still standing. Yet the chained prisoner of Jesus Christ was not afraid to write that Christ had broken down the middle wall of partition and had thus admitted Gentiles who were far off, strangers and foreigners to all the privileges of access to God in ancient times possessed by Israel alone. That separation between Jew and Gentile was done away with forever in Christ. Climbing into Jehu's chariot, the extraordinary transformation of a place of burning judgment into a place of mercy. So we have this picture of the chariot of the cherubim, which is the very presence of God. And we see coals underneath this sapphire stone. It's a strange chariot, and I'm not going to argue that. And yet, this man in linen was, was commissioned to take those coals and to scatter them. It's a form of judgment. And what we're going to see in the story of Jehu, Jehu is one of the kings of Israel. Now, technically, I could say none of the kings of Israel did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord in the whole sense of their life. However, one of these guys, Jehu, actually did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord for a bit of his life. That has to make you feel a little better, huh? And it's at the very beginning of his reign. 
where it's Ahab and Jezebel that are uh, king and queen of Israel. And this man is going to be anointed king in a very unique way. And then he's going to get in his chariot. And he has been commissioned by God to bring judgment on the house of Ahab and Jezebel and of all their, their, their offspring. And it's quite intense. You know, if I read it in here, you guys would think, okay, we need to put a, you know, a, a PG-13 uh, type of label on this one. It's very intense. I mean, you have Jezebel falling out of the window and then being trampled under and then dogs, you know, participating. Anyway, it's, it's rather disgusting, right? And it's judgment. And this chariot is bringing judgment. Remember I talked about the chariot of the cherubim? Yeah, it's bringing judgment. It has those coals of fire and we're like, oh, no. And there's a trembling before Jehu's chariot. And yet this same chariot that has just done all of this damage, that is working in you know, the wrath of God, you could say, it, for the holiness of God, for the righteousness of God, and it's just, and God's even going to say what was done was right. And yet there's an extraordinary transformation of a place of burning judgment into a place of mercy. This is one of the most extraordinary stories. That chariot is making its way down the road and he's going to run into someone. And this man has to make a choice that he's going to run into, which is very symbolic of us. This chariot of burning judgment, what do we deserve? We deserve to be trampled. We're no different than Ahab and Jezebel. We deserve the same thing they do, and it would be just, it would be right. However, this chariot stops, and Jehu, in a strange sense, extends his hand. I'll read you the story. It's amazing. So this is 2 Kings 10. Now when he departed from there, he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab coming to meet him. And he greeted him and said to him, is your heart right as my heart is toward your heart? And Jehonadab answered, it is. Jehu said, if it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand and he took him up to him into the chariot. Then he said, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So they had him ride in his chariot. And when he came to Samaria, he killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria till he had destroyed them according to the word of the Lord which he spoke to Elijah. Now, I don't know if you guys see it, but it's pretty profound. This same chariot that could trample you and bring judgment that has the stones of fire, you know, all that type of stuff in it, that there is actually this hand that extends out and says, is your heart towards me the way my heart is towards you? This God doesn't desire to bring judgment. He desires to bring mercy. The question is, is your heart towards him the way his is towards you? Do you desire mercy? Do you desire to be in the chariot or under the chariot? Those are the two choices. You could say, could I be beside the chariot? No, that's not one of the options. It's either under or in. And that is the profundity right there of the gospel message. You see, there is judgment. Our God is holy, holy, holy. But he desires to give mercy. And if you will reach out and take his hand of mercy, he takes you up into his chariot. And if you're in the chariot, you don't fear the wheels of the chariot. The stones of fire. I'm going to change the meaning of it. I know in your notes it says the stones of mercy. That was a mistype, you know, and I caught it. It's the stones of fire, same stones we've been talking about, but now I want to redefine them to be the place of God's burning mercy. You see, as much as God has judgment, he also has mercy. And this location, this chariot, is a place for both, just like we see with Jehu. It is a place of judgment, there's no doubt about it. He's trampling under feet Ahab, Jezebel, and all that lineage. But it's also a place for Jehonadab to receive mercy. We don't want to be like Ahab and Jezebel. 
They give the stiff arm to God. We want to be like Jehonadab, which reaches out and takes God's hand, or Jehu's hand in this case, and comes up into his chariot instead of being trounced underneath. So I'm going to call it the place of God's burning mercy. James 2.13, mercy triumphs over judgment. It's interesting because in Romans 12, you're going to see this same idea that instead of, it says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And then it's going to talk about the outward focus, that you care for those who are your enemies, that you give to them instead of demand or exact judgment from them. And it says, in so doing, you heap burning coals on their head. It's a very fascinating statement, right? Which in the context is a positive, and it's a form of mercy. It's not a form of judgment. So these same stones of, mercy, same stones of judgment also seem to also potentially have the power to be stones of mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is God's design, is to actually give you mercy. Many of us have a Christian heritage that is very strong in judgment. It's a good quality. It's just that even though it's true that God is a judge, and he's a just judge, and he's holy, 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 and he's righteous, 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 and he's pure, 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 even though that is true, his mercy is greater. And that is something that oftentimes isn't said to us, and the reason is, is we're afraid that people will take advantage of. If you knew that God was merciful, then, oh, I mean, you'd lose that, that sense of excellence, that pursuit of righteousness. We want you to have a little more of that trembling in you, and so as a result, we diminish his mercy and amplify his judgment, when in actuality, the Bible does the exact opposite. When Jesus comes he emphasizes stories that make us uncomfortable, like the woman caught in adultery and then Jesus comes up and scatters the Pharisees. And it's like, you can't let her go. That, she did a really bad thing. And it's not that Jesus isn't a just judge. It's not like he's endorsing what she did. It's just that his mercy is greater than judgment. And when you see the prodigal, who by the way, if any of you study the prodigal story, you have to admit that guy stinks, that prodigal. He's a bad dude. I mean, everything he's doing is just wrong, 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 wrong. And he was in the house. He actually shared in the benefits of the house, and he is going to reject that house. If there was ever someone in the Bible that deserves a nice stone of fire upon his head, it's that one. And yet Jesus is going to emphasize the father's behavior, the father's thought patterns towards him, that he's fogging up the windows looking for him to return. That's not what we expect because in the modern church we have a tendency to go one of two ways, either get sloppy in our, in our understanding of God's grace and his mercy, where it's like, oh, who cares, you know, it doesn't matter how we live, to, oh, it matters, every little detail of how we live, to the point where we live in a paralysis and, and a fear of judgment constantly upon our life. And there's two sides to this chariot that we need to remember. We need to remember that he is a just God but that he delights to give mercy. He desires to bring us into his chariot so that we can share this grand adventure with him. And when you're in the chariot, you do not fear the judgment, and yet you see the judgment very clearly. So your perspective is such that you know and you tremble even as you go about your daily business because you're in God's chariot. 
you're where the stones of fire are. You're very near them. You can feel the heat of them, but you get to enjoy the mercy instead of the judgment. So a sanctuary stone or a stumbling stone. So this stone of fire that we're talking about, or these stones of fire, either become a sanctuary or a refuge for you, where you can find your peace there, or they become a stumble to your soul and they crush you. It either breaks you free with its mercy or crushes you beneath its weight of judgment. How you approach God's chariot is very, very important. Isaiah 8, the Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. He will be as a sanctuary, but for those who reject him, and I added that, a stumbling, a stone of stumbling. So he'll either be your sanctuary or he'll be your stumbling. He'll be that which crushes and rains down upon you like hail. Mark 16, three through four, and they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away for it was very large. It's interesting because the Bible talks about large stones actually uh, quite a bit. And it's interesting because this stone that is blocking that resurrection life has been moved for us. That's, that stone which could symbolize judgment actually now symbolizes mercy. It's sort of like looking at the cross. And when you see a cross, what do you see? You don't see judgment, even though that's what it is. You see mercy. The things that would be judgment to us are converted to mercy to us when we have Jesus and when we turn to Jesus. Revelation 16, 21, talk about large stones. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about 100 pounds each. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, and the plague thereof was exceeding great. Mm. Well, I sure don't want to be in that hailstorm. We had a warning of a hailstorm here when we were during a prayer night, and our phones were like, Dee! you know, going off. And it was rather daunting. You know why? Because it was three-inch hail that was forecasted to come right on us in, a, in five minutes. Three-inch hail, you know, that's about a baseball. And uh, <clears throat> 100 pound hail? I have no idea what that looks like, but we're talking about, I mean, a bowling ball. I can pick up a bowling ball. What is it, like 10 pounds? What does a hundred pound hail look like? I mean, it's just solid lead, you know, what, what, you know, about, you know, a foot by a foot. You know, I don't know what would be a hundred pound hail, but that is like, that is one monstrous thing. And you could understand if you got hit by it, you wouldn't be doing so well. Uh, <laughs> stones of fire. The hailstones. This isn't what God designed for you. God designed you to be in his chariot, not under the judgment of the wheels of the chariot. Come boldly onto this holy ground. Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore come boldly to this holy ground, to this throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and gra find grace to help in time of need. Jesus Christ is made a way. I mean, part of our training here at Ellerslie is we go in depth into that way, understanding that way of how I, a sinner, have access into this territory and that God desires me to be in that territory. It's not just that he's like, oh, great, how'd you get in? And I'm like, uh, remember you died on the cross and so I believed? And he's like, oh, that's right. Yeah, and I can't do anything about it, but boy, you sure are unsuited for this environment. He desires me to come in. He doesn't just bring me in. He adopts me as his child. I mean, this is astounding. 
The very God who has the stones of fire and is holy, holy, holy. And he is a God who will bring judgment. And yet he doesn't desire to bring judgment. He desires to bring you mercy. Now, when I say that, there are some of you that still have a tough time. You know that he desires to bring everyone else in here mercy, but you struggle with receiving that mercy. It's a very normal thing. It's because you know you, and you know that you did things, and some of them were deliberate things, and the enemy has just been on your back ever since you did. He's saying, you deserve judgment. You deserve judgment. The enemy brings about condemnation. That's what he's whispering constantly. You know there's only one that condemns, and it's Jesus Christ. He would be your condemner, and guess what? He's saying, I want to give you mercy. And that's a biblical statement. The only time you're going to get condemnation is if you breathe your last rejecting him. And yet he is pursuing you as long as you have breath. His design and desire is to give you mercy. So if you desire mercy, praise God. You have a God that gives mercy. So that chariot is pulling up next to you. And yeah, you and I deserve to be under the wheels of it. However, do you see the hand extended to you? He says, take it, take it. Is my heart, is your heart towards me the same as my heart is towards you? And there's a great quote that Jehonadab said, it is, he said, it is, <laughs> it is. And that's a great way to respond to God today. It is, I, 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 I desire to be in your chariot. I, I really don't wanna be under the wheels of this judgment, I know I deserve it but if you're extending a hand of mercy, I'm taking it. And that's how we honor him. We honor him by taking his hand of mercy. Some of you think you honor him by you know, hitting yourself and, you know, and living under the, the penance season. It's like, I need to feel the weight of this. I'm sure you're already feeling the weight of it. But God also wants to bring you into his mercy. But don't let your boldness cause you to forget it's still holy ground. Knowing how to live with this tension is a very, very unique one. And obviously the early church struggled with this balance too. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine 29 through 30. Speaking of the Lord's Supper, you know, communion. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. Now we read that scripture and we're like, what in the world? That is so strange. However, you're entering into holy territory. And when you do, just remove your shoes. Show the deference. That's what this is, and most of us sense that. Like to remove shoes is to humble yourself. It's to say, God, you are so much greater, and I am so small and undeserving, but I want to enter into your territory because you invite me, but I want to enter in with my shoes off to show that I still remember that you are holy, holy, holy. And that I still remember that you are righteous, righteous, righteous. But that I also remember that you have clothed me in your righteousness. And that you have given me your Holy Spirit. So that I could partake and participate in the kingdom of heaven. We're like the prodigal in our own way. And yet we need to freshly remember the nature of the Father towards us. Like, come. Come in. But God, I violated your home. Come. In fact, I got the fatted calf, I got a ring for your finger, I got you know, shoes for your feet, fresh new shoes for you. And today, I want us to have an expectation that God wants to reshod our feet with a fresh understanding of the gospel of peace. So sometimes we just need a good foot washing, 
And we need to be cleaned up afresh by the reality of what he did on that cross. And it's very likely that for you, today is that day. And so as we all, because we have a whole bunch of new students, as we step forward into this new season, let's step forward recognizing that it is his delight and his desire to clean us, to wash us, to set us free, to give us a vision and a hope and a future. But as you take those steps, you might want to think about taking off old shoes, allowing him to wash your feet, and then shodding your feet with his special new shoes for this new season. Father, thank you for your mercy. And I thank you that it triumphs over your judgment. Lord, you are a just God, and we thank you for that. We thank you that you are holy. We thank you that you are righteous. Lord, but we thank you that you are ruled by your love and your mercy, and that those are the controlling factors of your being. And Lord, otherwise we have no hope. We thank you for choosing us, lowly Gentiles, those that could never come near your holy mountain are so many steps removed. Those of us that because of a middle partition were cut off from that great commonwealth. But Lord, you have invited us near and we say thank you. And Lord, I pray that we would add action to our awe today and that we would believe upon Jesus Christ and that we would boldly enter his throne room. Lord, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.